Good evening, everybody. My name is Clarice Rosas-Sharif, and I'm the Director of Public Programs for PEN America. Welcome. And are you here? Okay, I just want to make sure you're here and awake and ready for the conversation. Um, so I want to uh, welcome you to actually day two of the 2012 World Voices Festival. Uh, this is uh, an annual uh, event and celebration for PEN America. We have this year more than 165 writers and artists representing over 50 nationalities gathering here in New York City for a whole week. Uh, the theme of the festival this year is Resist and Reimagine. And I hope, I don't know if I see them, but we should have schedules for the festival. If we don't have them, go online, pen.org or worldvoices, penworldvoices.org. Uh, check out the schedule, and I hope that you um, get to go to as many events uh, as you can. Uh, it is very special and sometimes overwhelming because it's really hard to choose what to go to on, uh, on one uh, any given night. So I would like to say a few words about PEN and then we'll get started. PEN um, is an organization that stands at the intersection of literature and human rights. We champion the freedom to write. We believe that words can change the world. And our mission is to unite writers and their allies to celebrate creative expression. And our strength is in our membership. We're a member organization, a nationwide, nationwide community of novelists, journalists, editors, poets, essayists, playwrights, publishers, translators, agents, and other professionals uh, in the industry. And um, not, uh, last but not least, uh, we also have wonderful uh, readers as part, of in, as part of our community uh, who support our work and make our work possible. If you're not a member, I encourage you to look into it, join the family. Um, and if you are not a member, I also uh, want to remind you that a way to support PEN America is to get engaged, sign our petitions, um, download our toolkits, uh, and spread the word. I, before I introduce our two, uh, two guests tonight, um, I, I just wanted to, do a, uh, to mention a programming note. So tonight, we uh, were going to have a different moderator who, who chose and, and decided uh, to not participate tonight because of, of a certain um, saga. I think that's the word we used earlier, and I love it. Um, but uh, what I wanted to, on a personal note, but also uh, as a representative of PEN America, what I wanted to say is that I'm really, really happy that we get to have this event tonight with uh, Sally Cohn. I think that we're at a time where we shy away from uh, real conversations, hard conversations in real life. I think that there are conversations that are necessary to have offline. And the World Voices Festival, but also PEN America all year round provide these uh, wonderful opportunities and gatherings. We need to come together and be in conversation with each other. And I hope that you uh, stay tuned and come again and again to hear from amazing uh, writers, amazing artists, amazing thinkers who help us kind of you know, reflect and digest uh, the world uh, that we live in. So I'm really thankful uh, to Sally uh, for being here tonight. And I'm also very thankful to have an amazing moderator in Anjali Kumar. But let me, yes, actually, thank you. We can applaud. Let me formally introduce them and then we'll get started. 
So Sally Cohn is one of the leading progressive voices in America today. She's a writer, activist, CNN pol political commentator, and the host of a State of Resistance podcast. Her debut book, The Opposite of Hate, a, a field guide to repairing our humanity, investigates the evolutionary and cultural roots of hate. Thank you, Sally, for being here. And Anjali, thank you, Anjali Kumar was a founding general counsel and head of social innovation at Warby Parker, a leader for socially conscious businesses. Prior to joining Warby Parker, Anjali was senior counsel at Google where she curated and hosted the At Google speaker series on campus in New York City. She's an author and her first book, Stalking God, My Unorthodox Search for Something to Believe in, was published in January by Ashet. Thank you, Anjali. Welcome, Anjali. And a last programming note, you will receive... Thank you, Sally. So on the last programming note, uh, we have index card for uh, questions. We'll pass them around, write down your questions, we collect them, pass them to Anjali for the Q&A session. After the Q&A session, we have books available. Thank you, the Strand Bookstore, for being here tonight. Uh, buy a book. Sally will sign it. Next time, we will have Anjali's book. I promise. Buy her book. It's really so good. So here you it's go. It's really good. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much thank for you. being here. Oh, thank you for stepping in. It's it's my pleasure to step in. This was the only way I was getting on the Penn stage, so I was thrilled to do it. Right? It's kind of I a know. super honor. Mm, I'm honored. A little bit. I, I feel like, honored. What? You want me to come in Penn? I'll do that. I know. Here we are. But yes. I mean, I feel like we should address this straight on because obviously, I, maybe folks haven't been following it. We live in a little bit of a New York media bubble, so um, it's it's unclear to me if everyone knows what's going on, but. I would love for you just to dive right in and address it head on and, and talk about what happened and yeah. sort of where, where things are a week out. Yeah, so I'm, uh, first of all, thank you for being here. Uh, and thank you to Anjali for uh, being here. And of course to Penn for having me. This, I'm like, you know, the writer in me is not only can't believe I wrote a book, but can't believe I get to be at the Penn Literary Festival. It's pretty, it's like a dream come true. Um, so to be clear, uh, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to address it. Uh, Rebecca Carroll fairly publicly withdrew from participating in tonight's event um, because of uh, assertions that have been made uh, by Amina So, uh, who I quote in my book, who is uh, upset about the quote in the book and uh, has raised questions about both the sourcing and nature of the quote. Uh, so, to be very clear, uh, I had her consent to quote her. I asked her consent to quote. She said yes. She said the quote, and I took contemporaneous notes. That, that fact is, that's, that, those are the facts. The other fact is that as a white woman quoting a black woman, I was not as conscious or thoughtful about the power dynamics in play in that, in that quote, the stereotypes that were evoked in that quote, the harm that that quote could, could cause. And, and, I, and I've said this much uh, publicly, and we'll say again, that I, I wish I had gone back and reconfirmed that she was okay with me using that quote. So that's the, 
situation. Those are the facts. It's also uh, my regrets, P- the, the part that I genuinely regret and, and remain sorry for. Um, I do think it raises questions uh, that I hope we're talking about, and, I, and thank you for the introduction, because the question is, right, I think we are all learning as people. I happen to think we all are imperfect people, some of us more than others. I share a lot of my own imperfections and struggles with hate and bias in the book. And the question is, of course, how do we, I hope, listen, this is a, this is happening in a public lesson, right? But in public and in private, how do we hold each other accountable? How do we learn? How do we grow? How do we unravel the history and habits of hate that are in our world, our society, our hearts, our minds, our institutions, our relationships, and do better. And and how do we have a conversation, I think, about things that we disagree about? So I think one of the things that struck me, and I think, you know, just for the record, I am not a journalist, and Sally and I are are friends in life. So um, I'm not trying to do like a... But also for the record, you are... No, 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 no. Let's move. Yeah, let's... We're going to talk about the book. Yeah, Yeah. so let's talk about the book. I mean, so I think one of the things that it brought up for me, this whole thing, but leading into the book, is the the lack of space for conversation with people that you disagree with um, and that you might decide that you hate, right? So where, where does that space get created? I'm sort of jumping ahead, but I, I feel no, like... No, 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 it's a, a great question. And I mean, especially for me, right? I've spent, you know, as someone who was a community organizer for 15 years, right? So I did work going around the country in small towns and, and you know, rural communities and cities, helping people who are trying to make change in their communities, do what they wanted to do, do it better, do, you know. And as someone who made that unlikely transition from that into the punditocracy as it were, and in particular to being a lefty lesbian talking head on Fox News. I hope I didn't really throw you all (laughs) with any of those details. The lefty part, the lesbian part, (laughs) you okay? (laughs) Or the was on Fox News for two and a half years part. I know that those aren't things you usually hear together, (laughs) right? So just take it all in, you know? I had to get early on really ah, comfortable is the wrong word because I don't like it. It's not. It's but like to uh, being, uh, you know, having the the way that people have conversations with people who are on the other side from them, which is which are increasingly unhealthy, right? I mean, we just we don't actually try to have conversations that lead to change. We just attack each other, and in particular, that happens in this sort of us them dynamics, left right. Democrat, Republican, center, le- you know, whatever. And that is, that's, I don't know, I don't even know if I'm sure it's, it's cathartic. It's certainly how we bond. Yeah. But it doesn't actually lead to transformation. So talk about the, the bonding of our hate. What do, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, we've all done it, right? And, like, this is part of why I wrote this book. Part of why I wrote the book was obviously, as I talk about the experience of going into Fox News as me, and thinking, well, uh, not only do all these people think hateful things, believe in hateful policies, support hateful ideas, but I figured they were all actually hateful people. Like, intrinsically, in their personage, in every way that they would interact with me, they'd be like, seething, mean, nasty monsters. I really did. You what I imagine. going in as yes. right? Yeah. The on there, behind the scenes, the people watching at home, hateful monsters, all of them. And... 
So what happened was they weren't, right? I mean, they still believed a lot of hateful things. We actually sometimes we agreed on things, but but they were nice, normal, caring people. Which I know sounds really weird that that surprised me, but I'm just be it did, right? And I was surprised that it surprised me, but there I was. And then the thing I also realized was, holy shit, I hate them. Like here I was so outraged that they were so hateful, and I actually hate them. And it's the same thing I've noticed since I've wrestled with that in the in the time since, but. In the wake of the 2016 election, I started to have those same feelings again. And I noticed I'd be at my dinner parties with my liberal friends and our liberal bubbles. You were at some of them. <laughs> and you were too, other people out there. Uh, you were at your own, I know. Don't, you don't have to raise your hands, but I know you, I know you know this because you live in the same liberal bubble I do. And we were at our dinner parties or wherever. And people were like, oh, those Trump supporters, they're anti-immigrant and they're Islamophobic and they're racist and I, they're so hateful and I, I hate them so much, right? And we bond over hating them. We bond over mocking them, over how stupid they are or how backwards they are or how deceived they are, or, right? That's almost, that is a form of social bonding just like they bonded over hating us for thinking they're deplorable and right like that is a that is actually a very unfortunate form of social ties mm -hmm. which is sad yeah no you yeah I mean it's incredibly sad and it's um but I think we're all guilty of it and I think one of the things that your book really uh shone a flashlight on for myself was was that and thinking it's so easy to sit here and be like oh but I'm not the hateful one it's you it's them and uh, when totally. you confront your own biases, it's a little bit of a wake-up call. One of my like, one of my biggest uh, takeaways, sort of phenomenologically, is how we all tend to have a "they started it" philosophy of hate. Right? Like most people, by and large, do not wake up in the morning thinking they're hateful. Like they don't aspire to be hateful. And this is actually interesting. So, in for the book. Uh, as I know we'll talk about, but like I, s I spent a lot of time with ex-neo-Nazis and ex-terrorists, but even when you look at research of current neo-Nazis and like current terrorists, they don't see themselves as hateful. They see themselves as reacting to the hatred of others. So like terrorists see themselves, their self-identity so like is de defensive. Totally. Like, yeah. oh, we're reacting to the hate of the West or the Islamophobia of the West or you know, the occupation of power, like it's their hate that we are reacting to. Mm -hmm. And if none of us see how we participate in that and it's always just, well, you started it, so now I'm justified and we all keep doing that, then it's like an eye for an eye. Right. So, uh, okay, you call your book The Opposite of Hate. Why? Um, and what is the opposite of hate? Maybe it's a two-part question. Yeah. Uh, uh, I... I don't remember why I called it I remember having a moment, I actually remember having a moment where I like sat up in bed in the middle of the night and was like, this is it, I found the title. And it was like one of those things where like a lot of things that happen in the middle of the night, you think like, this is the best thing that ever happened and then you fall back asleep <laughs> and then the next day you're like, what happened? Something, I had an epiphany in the middle of the night and it was amazing and I forgot it and then like fortunately I remembered it. And I remember why, because the, to me, I wanted the title to have a journey in it, right? And it's not, and, it, and that the journey wasn't a destination. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't think this is a destination book. 
because yeah, for me, it's saying this is the answer only. No, that the here's some ideas. Here's some things that work. Here's what the research shows. Here's what other people have learned. Here's what I've learned. But look, to me, it's a personal book, and I have not, and I'm not there. Like I have not conquered this. I have not figured this out. Like I am very much imperfectly still wrestling with my own hate, and so I couldn't have it have a title that was like. Here it is, you know, right? It had to be a pursuit. And to be clear, the other reason is, so the opposite of hate isn't love. I mean, it may be like linguistically, technically, but um, in, in, in this case, I don't, it isn't. You don't have to love someone to stop hating them. You don't even have to really like them. You have to understand how we are all fundamentally connected as human beings. How in spite of our differences and disagreements, by the way, which I think are important and part of what make us great as people and great as a country, in spite of those differences and disagreements, right, we still have something that connects us. We all have a fundamental humanity, right to humanity, right to equality and justice and opportunity. And that, understanding that, is the opposite of hate. And it's also the antidote. It's how you fight hate. Is that empathy? Or well, is I it call connection? it connection. Oh. Thank you. I know. Yeah, did it's you see that? I read that. I that was I like, know. that was called... <laughs> Softball. A softball yeah. from a friend. <laughs> no, I call it connection, right? I mean, because empathy felt too soft and internal to me. It's partly empathy, right? You could We could have lots of synonyms for it. Um, but empathy to me is like a feeling. And it's not just a feeling. There has to be an action, right? I want, like, I want to be very clear that stopping hate isn't just about intention. It's not about feelings. It's not about, right? You actually have to then do something, right. both in terms of your own life and who you interact with and how you interact with people. And we have to do something about institutions and systems of hate, right? It's not just enough. You have to get there on your own to then see that there is a problem that you then want to be part of a solution to. But then we also have to do something about how hate is baked into our schools and our economy and the, you know, our workplaces and our criminal justice system. We need to really friggin' rename that. Um, because it is not justice. a justice system. Um, and we need to, uh, it, it, ha it requires action. We have to do something so to fight one hate. The, one of the things that you did that I that always struck me as crazy. So I, I don't know if all of you follow <laughs> Sally on Twitter, but her trolls are intense. Like they, I mean, th these folks I are. I did I quote you? Did I end up coming out? I did. I, I don't know. But like I did, because you, once you I retweeted you and you were like, what the hell? Yeah, Who are these like, people? Oh my God, yeah. like, don't ever do that again. I think I it didn't like, make it in. I think it, it didn't make it into the final draft because that chapter was getting long. I'm but sorry. I, but it's okay. I mean, but I'm, it was I'm relieved because those trolls were so intense. Yeah. And I they learned were. about the mute and block function from that one experience. I was like, this is a very effective way to deal with trolls. I just keep blocking everybody. So like, I don't want to brag, but I have had people at Twitter tell me that I have some of the worst trolls. Thank you. you. Know? Thank you. I, that's what they say. I believe it because it was, it was so, I mean, joking aside, it was so no, intense really and it was really, it was just a small flash. I don't know. It was some really yeah. innocuous something that I tweeted that she oh, retweeted. Oh, I can like tweet a picture of my dog. I yeah, could tweet a picture of like a new carpet. Like, hey, we got a new carpet. And there'd yeah. be like 300 people on Twitter who'd be like, rug muncher. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. really bad, it's guys. It's horrible. It was really intense. 
So I make jokes because what the hell else am I going to do? Yeah. Right? Like, that's well, really ugly. Did, Initially at Fox, crazy. I drank heavily. Go <laughs> on. <laughs> but what she, what she did is you engage them. So I, I would, at first, I was like, am I supposed to respond to these? Because that's what Sally does. And I was like, hell no. I'm just blocking them and muting them. And, and then I look at my husband. I'm like, these people are crazy. And he's like, shut off Twitter. Like, just, just delete it. You know, like, but, um, but Sally, you engage them, which I think is really interesting. And not only did you engage them, but for the purposes of the book, you actually sought out some of your worst Twitter trolls. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, so first of all, troll handling 101. You have three options when engaging a troll. Uh, one is to ignore. Ignoring is a great. Back away slowly. First, Deal back away slowly. First, do no harm. That's like, right? That's a good Deal strategy. Bears, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, the second is what actually a lot of people do, which is respond with hate, right? And, right, like, and it's that, it goes back to that. They started it philosophy and guess what? That doesn't help. And there's studies, well, we could get into why, and I, I get into in the book why it is that social media and technology in particular have this depersonalizing effect that can make hate worse and make us behave more hatefully. But also, there are studies that, for instance, if people, if subjects are asked to leave a comment on a website, and the first three comments that they see already on the website are nasty Gesundheit, are nasty trolling comments, people are twice as likely to leave a trolling comment themselves. So we set the tone with our behavior, not the trolls, right? Uh, that's us, yeah. right? Because then you do it, then I see it, because we're, you know, right? And, and that's, so we, each of us plays a role in potentially stopping it. So the third way to engage is my favorite way, which is with kindness, with compassion, She's even like humor. Call them up and take them out for coffee. Right, and then <laughs> in this case, well, I went, I went, I did, I went a step further for the book, which is yeah. I actually did call them up. Um, because everybody sort of says, like, who are these people? We don't even think of them as people, right? We call them trolls. Trolls is a dehumanizing term, right? They're monsters that live under a bridge. So I called them up, and I found out that they are actual real people with hopes and dreams and fears and concerns and hobbies and quirks and faults and foibles and who, f interestingly, feel invisible and voiceless, who didn't think I was even paying attention to the mean things they were saying because they, they understand how Twitter works. I'm not saying that they don't, like they know those are public tweets, but they didn't think, they're almost to a T, they all said, but like I didn't think anyone was paying attention to those because really they don't think anyone's paying attention to them, which is meaningful in this Just moment, really right? Because yeah. we have more ways to communicate and yet so many of us feel voiceless and here I am, I've got a voice, I've got a platform. And then also that they were in so many ways suffering. So one of my trolls who had said some heinous things to me, but her son is, her 24-year-old son is in, uh, you know, uh, rehab for a meth addiction. And to hear the pain in her voice, look, we could go into why she caused me pain and that that's, right? But it sure puts my pain in suffering. Like, what does it mean? Like, she just wrote a few mean things on the internet. She's really suffering. Um, and I'll tell you, there's, you know, Brene Brown says this, it's hard to hate up close. Right? And I'll tell you, I feel more affection toward them. And since then, they don't troll me. And in fact, have all been, you know, sending messages. When's the book coming out? Good luck on the book. How's the book going? <laughs> right? So like they just wanted to there be you seen. go. Well, I mean. I mean, no, I don't mean like they wanted to be seen. Way, and they to Listen, we, again, none of us are the worst thing we've ever done in life. Yeah. I mean, I hope none of us are the worst thing we've ever done in life. Right? The question is, we often want that for ourselves. 
right? We don't want to be seen as the worst thing you've ever done in life, and yet can we give that grace to others? So it's not about forgiveness or well, grace? Sometimes it's about forgiveness, I suppose, but it's, it's more about giving people the opportunity to be the, their best selves. Look, I'll tell you my biggest takeaway. Like, there are concrete tools in the books about how to interact with your, you know, Trump supporting uncle at Thanksgiving and your trolls and right but for me the um, I should probably save this for later but whatever I'm going to give it to you now and then it's going to be sort of like a denouement and then it's going to go down I think but then we'll try to go back up again does that seem right okay um, I heard a yeah so we're going with it no but for me the sort of m like moral of the journey the thing I took away from, like if I was going to get something tattooed on my forehead right now or like an act. Don't do that. I know. But okay. <laughs> no. Face tattoos are forever. Face tattoos. Um, someone said that about having a kid. They're like, having a kid is like getting a face tattoo. You really need to commit for yeah. life. You need to really think that one through. Yeah. <laughs> Noted. Anyway, <laughs> that's not my aphorism. Um, I don't want to be the excuse for someone to be their worst self. Wait, tell me that again. I don't want to be the excuse because of my behavior, because of something I do. I don't want to be the excuse someone else can use to be their worst self. Instead, I want to be the inspiration for people to be their best selves. And so what that means to me is that you're taking responsibility for yourself, right? In the way I talk about people who I don't agree with politically, in the way I talk, interact online, in the messages I send to my kid about, you know, how we talk about others, how we talk about other kids. I don't want to be the excuse for someone to be their worst self. I want to be the inspiration for someone to be their best self. I love that. Wait, I want to do a time check. Okay. Just to make sure we... Because we actually can't see we have shit questions. up here. I know, I can't see if you're just signaling you know. to me. So... We, we're good ten, for... That's ten hands. Ten fingers. Ten until questions. Is that correct? Okay, okay so... Be thinking about your everyone, questions. Please think about your questions. I believe there are cards going around, and then we'll gather them in a, in a sec. Okay. Okay. There are already people going. with know, eager card waving. waving. waving cards. Um, okay, so I want to get into some of the specifics of the book, too. Okay. Of some of the examples. You, you've talked to a lot of um, people who have done extraordinarily hateful, violent things in their lives. Um, a neo-Nazi. There's a lot of examples. And they were bone-chilling examples of some of the, the things that they had done. And I would love for you just to talk about, pick one of them that really, you know, that you feel like you can just talk, tell us a bit about what the experience was like and uh, some of the key lessons. I, um, hmm. You want me to pick one? No, you know, the one I've been thinking about lately because I'm, so uh, just heartbroken, de bereft, depressed, concerned, where I don't, there's not even, sometimes words don't, about what's happening in Syria. And that there are human beings who are capable of such callous brutality against other human beings. And, and that we can seem not to care. And one of, the one of the things I did for the book is I went to Rwanda, 
where in 1994, Rwanda had the fastest genocide in human history. 800,000 people massacred in 100 days. And I had read about, I mean, I'd, you know, read about it. I thought I knew, I didn't understand when people, when they said that people, when the book said that people had killed their friends and their neighbors, I didn't understand it meant like that people killed their godchildren and the people they have Sunday supper with or their brother-in-law. And to, on the one hand, to, to experience close up and Rwanda has done, you know, unlike a lot of countries such as ours that have not really reckoned with uh, our history and try to pretend it, ignore it, not talk about the hate and brutality and violence in our own history, they have, they, they, they keep it pretty front and center. Um, and it's, 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 again, there's not, there's not words to describe uh, the, the experience of, ex- you know, really realizing how horrific people can be to one another. And not just in Rwanda, right? In, in Serbia, in Germany, and right? In the United States. Yeah, in the United States, in our own history. And, and that those are all people, right? That those that it's not there's not something unusual about them. One of the philosophers uh, I talk with in the book, one of the moments that just sort of sucked me in the gut was when she said, you know, we don't have mass atrocities because of a handful of psychopaths. We have mass atrocities because masses of people, normal people, ordinary people, do these extraordinarily awful things. So that uh, took my breath away, and then sitting in Rwanda in the home of a woman who, ha- who is Tutsi, who had invited her Hutu neighbor, who she calls her friend, who had murdered her husband and children, and who now lives next door, and to watch them and watch her serving him tea, laughing with him, I I don't I honestly don't think I'm I could be capable of that kind of forgiveness. I don't. I I I I don't. It's unfathomable to me. It is incredibly inspiring and gives me some deep hope inside myself that people are po- that people are capable of that kind of forgiveness as well and grace and kindness as well as that cruelty. Is it even fair to expect them to be though? No, not necessarily. And that's one of the things I really wrestle with in the book is this question of whether it it felt unfair. It felt to me like I had this, I felt anger or even rage sitting there. I just, in this this one moment, for instance, I'd just gone from seeing a, uh, I think it's the most, for me, it was the most painful part of the whole journey of the book. And I think it's one of the most painful parts of the book of going to see one of the memorials to uh, a, ma- a church where a massacre had taken place and where they have very vividly, uh, there's still evidence of the massacre. And to go from that to this experience, no, I was, I, I no. <laughs> no, it felt, it felt yeah. unfair, it felt wrong, it felt like well, I, you should still hate him, like what, you can't, yeah. And like I wrote the book on it. You have permission right. to hate this person. For no, but I mean, I, I, I understand. Listen, it's not, that's why it's a, it's not, that's why the, I think the book raises a lot of questions for all of us as people. 
and and asks uh, and sort of lays out a potential journey, but it's not inevitable or even automatic and without its moral quandaries and questions, right? And I still, I still look at that scenario and say, I don't think I could do that. So is there, is there room in your philosophy around this for hate to live side by side with rage or anger? Like, is the anger the same thing as hate? I suspect it isn't. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely not. Right? You can still be angry, but not be hateful. Or maybe I'm, I, I, would, I would love your thoughts on that. I think, think so listen, I define hate in a particular way in the book, right? Yeah, I so don't let's maybe start there. I don't um you can like hate Brussels sprouts. That's okay. Cuz I'm now like the authority, like I'm like pe- I am so not fun at a party cuz people will like say, "Oh, I hate blah blah blah," and then they look over at me like sort of sheepishly and I'm like, "It's okay." <laughs> like, I forgive you. And that's fine. Like it's not you can hate Brussels sprouts or, you know, whatever vegetable you want. You can hate the musical stylings of Kenny G, which I write about extensively in the book. I personally also hate. Uh, I don't really understand anyone who doesn't, but there are obviously people because he had several hit albums. I don't understand that, but that's fine. Um, You could hate your ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, your boss, uh, you know, your neighbor, like whatever. That's that kind of interpersonal hate. Fine. I'm worried about uh, the hate that comes from our history in the past and our habits in the present of demeaning and dehumanizing people and certain groups of people because of their ideas or their identity. That is what I'm worried about. And I think you cannot hate and still be angry, right? I mean, I was a community organizer and part of organizing philosophy is you're, you're trying to motiv- mobilize people on their anger. They should look around and be, you want people to be angry about injustice angry about inequality, angry that their kids' schools are crumbling and the schools down the road are better fun, right? You, you should be angry about that. That's not fair. It's wrong, and it's only out of that anger that you then are motivated to do something. And anger at injustice and wrong and unfairness is, I think, righteous. Hating people, hating people, hating groups of people, hating people because of their identity or ideas, I is where I think it becomes problematic, in part both on a moral level and also uh, on a pragmatic level. Because if you want to change, if you want to change the world, if you want to change systems and institutions of injustice, people need to change too. And by and large, people do not change because you hate them. It does not open them to the kinds of conversations and transformational experiences that say, I'm gonna you know, think about that. I'm gonna, li- I'm gonna right? And so that's why I separate those two. So I, I want to talk for a minute about the role that media plays in fueling our culture. What do you mean? I don't, I don't, I don't know. I wanted to ask you, do you think they play a role? I mean, I think it's really easy for us to all, you know, look to social media, things like Twitter, things, you know, not Instagram so much, but like Twitter, Instagram. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Instagram, Instagram does not, not fuel hate. Yeah, Instagram seems like it's a positive space for the time being. You haven't seen my trolls on Instagram. That's why. You I'm just telling you. Instagram too? OMG, yeah. Really? Uh, maga, maga, maga. I can tell really? when like something has happened on Reddit or even worse, Stormfront, because let me tell you, your day has not been ruined until some. You know what Stormfront is? Show yeah. of hands. Oh, 
you lucky people. Don't go Googling. Just right now, I'm telling you. Stormfront is the leading white power website in America. Um, I don't know how to finish that sentence. It's what it is. And so if you get posted about on Stormfront, you're fucked. (laughs) And so I literally, in the book I write about this, there was like a day during the election where like I posted a picture about my dog. My dog's super cute. And literally... I'm like, oh, something went down. Like, you know it happened because suddenly there's like 30 trolls who are like, hashtag MAGA, MAGA, you know, make America great again. MAGA, 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 MAGA. And the one's like, MAGA, and your dog is cute. MAGA, 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 MAGA. That's amazing. MAGA. Even on Instagram, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. You're the only person I know who gets trolls on Instagram. That's impressive, Sally. Well done. It's a dubious honor. Sorry, you want to talk about the media, yeah. Yeah, and then we'll jump into questions because we have a handful here. Um, Media, just the role of media in fueling our culture of hate. And then uh, if we take that to be, yeah, the answer is yes, then then what should they be doing about it, if anything? What responsibility do they have to to sort of turn the ship around? I mean, there are no cable news executives in the room, right? And certainly they don't read the internet. It's okay. Um, Look. Again, I, I think we have to not be careful to sort of be like, this moment is so bad, or, right? Like, we are a society that was, yes, founded with lofty aspirational principles, supposedly, about equality and justice for all, and yet was founded in hate and antagonism and the literal and institutional enshrining of the idea that some people and some groups of people are better than others. So, and that actually was through, you know, the printing press and newspaper. Like, that has been baked into our culture, our society, our politics, our media forever. I think what's different now, um, and not necessarily, by the way, in the context of that history, particularly worse, but feels more intense, is both the 24-7 news cycle and the proliferation of channels and especially cable news channels. So then you have the competition for eyeballs and online you have the competition for clicks. And the the model that we have embraced and that the media has embraced is the uh, fights and ugliness and spats the get outrage. attention. So yeah. let's, we're going to, yeah, stoking outrage. Politicians have done it too. Um, and because of social media, Look, maybe once before, you know, 20 years ago, you and I would sit on the couch uh, and complain about X, Y, or Z or say something mean about but it would just stay between us. Mm-hmm. Now, we can very casually spread hate and hateful things, hateful sentiments online and receive them. And right? then and bond so it feels over that. And, you know, you look yeah. at now cyberbullying, and, right? And it, the idea is nothing new it's the intensity and the ease of it and the sort of surround sound of it in a way um and i think look that then the answer is incumbent on media to choose a different path right stop feeding people junk information right if we don't want an unhealthy democracy stop feeding people junk information and junk news uh and media has to make a better choice around that and we as consumers as people who both consume and create media with our thumbs and our fingers need to also say we're going to make better choices too we're not going to click on the crap we're not going to watch the crap we're not going to vote for the politicians who bait and divide and stoke resentment we're going to make better choices too to vote with our eyeballs and our clicks and all the rest of it 
Um, we have a bunch of questions, and I want to make sure we get through them because there's some good ones. Why, thank you. Uh, how do you draw upon your Jewish identity to deal with hate? And do you feel that as a lesbian Jewish person whose community has been so harmed by hate that you really owe trolls and hateful people any kindness? Oh, great question. Really you know, question. it's so weird. I'm, it's obviously, those who know me know I'm not a night person. So at first I was like, how do I draw? And I was like, poorly. That was my, I went right to, yeah, no one else? All right. Um, you know, uh, I don't feel I owe, I don't feel I owe anyone kindness. This is interesting, right? Like, it's not an obligation. I don't see this as an obligation, right? I see it as a choice. And by the way, I see it as, in, in some ways, a selfish choice. Like, I don't find hate pleasant as a person. Like, so speaking about me, like, I find it, I don't enjoy hating people. Right? Or being hated. Or being, like, I just, it doesn't yeah. feel good. Yeah. I feel bad about myself, right? Like, I, it's, not, it's not a good feeling. And, right, the organizer in me and the pragmatist in me, like, listen, I've had people, and, and I, I don't, it's, it's very fair criticism. I've had friends call and say, look, forget about talking to, like, you know, trying to transform current neo-Nazis. Like, I can't believe you even gave that ex-neo-Nazi the time of day. It's one of the main characters in the book. Uh, you know, who at the time was like the lead white power recruiter in North America and head of a, uh, you know, the top white power band in the world. Yes, that's actually a thing. Um, and I was like, look, what's, what's the choice here? First of all, he d I'd actually didn't change him. He already had changed. But what's the choice? Would, would we rather him stay that? Like, would we rather him stay in the white power movement and like continuing to further that uh, agenda and ideology, or would we rather what he is now, which is an imperfect person who still struggles with his own biases and sometimes says a lot of fucked up shit, and is working on it and is trying to pull other people out of the white power movement and runs a community service organization with his South Asian best friend and is a practicing Buddhist. Which would we prefer? The latter. Is I the think so. Right, but I mean, like, <laughs> I think so. Speak on behalf so, of all of and us. <laughs> I'm not saying, and to me, like, this is my path, and I think part of allyship, right, is that some people are not going to, you know, feel safe or empowered or, uh, for whatever reason, inclined to engage with hate in this way, mm -hmm. right? That's part of why it's like that's part of what he does is so powerful. That's part of why I find ex-combatants in general so powerful is that they then can have those conversations. Uh, in much more accessible ways. And I recognize that, like, I, this is something I, like, going and being a lefty lesbian at Fox News isn't for everyone, right? Well, that brings us to our next question. Oh. Hey. Good transition. Thank you. Thank what you very much. What made you take the Fox job if you thought what you thought at the time that they probably hate you? <laughs> I really liked the dramatic <laughs> pause yeah. and delivery. Like that was really, <laughs> that was really great. Um, did I mention, by the way, you, what you're not getting to experience tonight is how friggin' funny and smart Anjali Kumar is. Oh, I just want to say that, that before. No, no, no. But I just want to say that her book, Stalking God, is one of my <laughs> favorite books of the year. It really is amazing. You all should read it. It's such I'll an enjoyable, fun. No, it really is. Thanks, I'm just saying. Sally. Stop it. <laughs> Unfortunately, because this is so last minute, it's not for sale. But please go to your local bookstore. Go to the Strand and please order it. All right. Um, uh, <laughs> what made I you was, take it the was, Fox Well, job? listen, let's be clear. Like, I didn't actually want to be a pundit to begin with. So what happened was I was a community organizer. I was speaking at a conference, 
kind of like this. And someone came up to me who worked in television and said, we have to get you on television. And I semi-politely, somewhat rudely said, no, we do not. (laughs) That's actually what I said. Because I was like, no, I'm an organizer. That's not what organizers do, right? The whole ethos of organizing is you're behind the scenes and you're putting other people in the spotlight. And that's not what I do. Thank you very much. And I turned to walk away. This woman grabbed my arm, kind of hard, (laughs) and said, you know, you're going to do this and you're going to be good at it. And I was like, well, she doesn't take no for an answer. Got that. Okay. Um, and I thought, all right, well, look, I'm going to learn some things that I can then bring back to other organizers and activists and make me a better organizer. And what I realized is I did what baby pundits do going on all the different channels. I realized, oh, this is a lot like organizing. And instead of 10 people in a church basement, it's like a million people on television. But it's the same thing about translating ideas, energizing people, uh, inspiring people to make change, breaking down issues. And so when I went to, so what then ended up happening literally was like a year after that, I saw this guy on the street. He uh, looked like Roger Ailes. So I waved at him. He waved at me. He called me into his office. True story. Also named Unlike Roger. everything else. No. <laughs> uh, he called me into his office and he told me I had pretty eyes. Thank you. I know. Five times. Is Roger Ailes? In five minutes. Yes. Several times in mm. a row told me I had pretty eyes. Guys, I got to tell you, I got Barking away light. I'm just saying <laughs> I got away. Well, that too. But I got away like if I'd known, you know, I was sort of on, the, as you might imagine, on the margins of Fox News. I later found out, obviously, how bad it was. So I feel like, you know, pretty eyes, I, 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 esca- I really dodged a bullet there. Um, so he offered to hire me, and I called all my friends who were all the people, literally, literally my friends were the people who were organizing the campaigns to destroy Fox News. And so I pick up the phone, and I say, hey, guys, like, one by one, I call them all. I was like, what do you think about that? Like, is this a, like, right? Like, I'm going to work for the devil, and I'm going to take their money, and right? I'm going to be, imp- you know, implicated in their success, and how does this work? And, and they all were in favor of it. And I'm not going to, like, you know, but, like, that they said, like, no, look, someone's going to do it, and we'd rather it be you, and this is helpful, and right. And, and again, for me, what I came to realize, and the reason I did it is, you know that saying, why do people rob banks? Because it's where the money is. <laughs> well, why do I want to talk to people about change on Fox News? Because it's where the people, I mean, they had the biggest, they had the most people. They, at the time, had more Democrats watching Fox News than MSNBC and CNN combined. Democrats. And those were the people who needed to be reached. So to me, it was, that was the way to make a difference. I didn't know that story, by the way. Thank you for that. The pretty eyes part? Yeah, or the whole thing? The, whole, the, the pretty I eyes part. I, I know, well, thank you. Thank you How very much. How are we doing on time? Are we still good? We're good. Five. I think Wait, you want to hear, can I tell you one more Roger Ailes story? Yeah. Bring it. Do you guys want to hear it? <laughs> <laughs> so when I finally left Fox News on the tail end, that's another story, but we'll get to that some other time. But anyway, when I left, Roger Ailes said to me, are you videoing this? Oh, I guess there's a video anyway. Yeah, it's fine. It's a, all right. Hello, right internet. <laughs> Roger Ailes said to me, he told me again how pretty my eyes were, and then he said, <laughs> <laughs> literally, this was, this was like in 2013, I guess, so this was before any of the, hara- you know, uh, and he said, uh, he said, I mean, you're so pretty. Men must not know what to do with you. Oh, no, this I've heard. That story I've heard. And you're like, that and is I correct. Said, <laughs> and I said, Roger, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that statement. <laughs> That's uncomfortable. That's what I said. Because what the, 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 what the,
Again, kind of dodged a bullet. Still really messed up. There you have it. Really friggin' wacky thing to say to... It's right? Bananas. I was and like, oh, and then I said, I said, no, 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 that's not even true. I said, I don't know what to do with that. And then I said, also, I don't know what to do with them, so it works out fine. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Okay, so these, all the, ra- we, I know we only have, I oh, feel shit. Like I'm one sorry. More I killed, no, 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 I, you're I doing just great. was going over that with Roger Ailes' sto- stories. I'm sorry. Like Go on. Were, we needed that, Roger. I wanted to give them something special. There's so many great questions here, so I'm just going to close my eyes and pick one. Is that a good moderating way? Now you can tell I'm not a journalist because I'm like, oh, let's pick one. Whichever one I can read. Um, okay. <laughs> That's about a handwriting question, I, really. No, I know my eyes. I know are that one. I, oh, I see. Do you need help? To do this handwriting is good. What are your thoughts on the irony of the Sinclair Group creating the required speech by news anchors to talk about the problems and bias in all the other media <laughs> networks? Such a good question. Right. Okay, so here's yeah, an tough. interesting thing. I will say that was some, right? So people know that the Sinclair Group, which is a conservative media conglomerate, they literally wrote a script and had every single one of their local anchors recite the script. Yeah. Uh, and that was basically, basically like super duper Orwellian, yeah. right? Like it was like George Orwell wrote the script and like direct, like it, it should say at the end, there's a montage, Google it. And at the end it should yeah. say, written and produced by George Orwell. Yeah. Because the video is extraordinary if you haven't seen it's it. It's like all the, the they the all look like they look like hostage tapes. Yeah. Right? Where they're like, like and they're all talking wrong. about like bias and non-truth yeah. when clearly they're being forced to recite a yeah. script. Like it's, it's so meta. It's anyway. Like tone. It's extraordinary. Um so what do you think? <laughs> Did I not just reveal what I think about I think it? That's, that's some seriously I messed think we up can shit. Move on. <laughs> no, but it's the kind of it's the problem that we have right now and also by the way in a in an overly corporatized media. Yeah. Right where we do not have free, independent, uh, especially nonprofit media. Right, there's a reason that over and over and over again, people. By the way, uh, on the left and right, think you know believe in PBS and NPR and see it uh, see them as both the non most non biased sources we have is because they are in fact nonprofit, publicly supported, free and independent media. And and what we've seen instead is an opposite trend where it's more and more corporate media, and then you see how agendas bleed into that, and it's very very dangerous. And you know. I pray for a democracy. <laughs> I mean, there's broader structural answers, and I do get into it in the book, but that's some fucked up shit. <laughs> is this sort of short? Go well ahead. The, Next question. Go answer. ahead. Yeah, it's some fucked up shit. Some fucked answer. up shit. Um, okay, so I, I feel like we have, do we have time for one more? I'm just going to do one more. One more. Okay, one more. I mean, fucked up shit's kind of a fucked up note to end on. That might be a note to end on, but we'll try one more. So this is, um, you've got a bunch of book tour events coming up. And someone would like to know, how do you think your book tour events outside of New York will be different or more challenging? Speaking to the bubble and speaking, like, will you be going, maybe the, oh, you will know, you be going to places that yeah. perhaps Let's be you? honest. Initially, um, well, no, the book tour events are like, you know, uh, you know, they're D.C., they're San Francisco, it's Los Angeles, it's Boston. They're somewhat usual suspect liberal author book tour cities, in fairness. Now, what is interesting is I have done uh, a fair amount of and will continue to do a fair amount of conservative media. Uh, later in the book tour, I'll be in uh, Minneapolis. I think eventually I'll be doing, you know, more conservative middle American, like Iowa. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of whatever, but it, my brain is shutting down at this hour. But so, but it's really, to me, it's actually doing conservative media. Uh, in small towns uh, or in state radios or just conservative in New York. I mean, doing, you know, uh, conservative radio in New York. Um, And, you know, here's what I enjoy about it. 
right? You kind of, there's a way in which, and I teach some of these tools in the book, is there's a way in which if you aren't starting with an argument, right? But you're starting with an affirmation, which is, by the way, in this moment, I will tell you, not only do most people not think they're hateful, most everyone thinks they're hated. Right? Now, that doesn't mean they are. <laughs> doesn't mean they are the same way. Doesn't mean it's the same severity or implications in terms of politics and power, and right? But they feel it. And feelings are interesting because they're valid by just by being felt. What you feel is what you feel, whether it's, there's no facts, right? Feelings aren't facts. You can't argue with feelings. Your um, therapist told me that years ago. Totally same. Yeah. Couples yeah. counseling. If, <laughs> I, if my partner <laughs> says, uh, you hurt my feelings, I can't be like, yeah, like no, oh, I didn't. Fine, like, it doesn't work. Show. I mean, yeah. I can say it. It's really a bad strategy. <laughs> so, um, but then to be able to have those conversations and say, yeah, the way you feel like you're being you know, marginalized, hated for supporting Trump or for being in, you know, a rural white community, or right? And then to use that as a bridge to talk about racial bias, sexism, economic inequality, police brutality, right? Transphobia, Islamophobia, right? Like to use, to, to try to connect through our humanity as opposed to battle, right? That your sense of identity and your feelings do not have to be at odds in fact with someone else's in fact the answer could be right that we need to start seeing people for who they are we need to start understanding facts we need to right like there's there can be common pain my friend van jones says common pain common problems can we find common solutions it's not always that easy but to me i actually i welcome the chance to be able to do that to be in those spaces and have those conversations. Well, I think that feels like a good note to end on, better than the last fucked one. Up shit. Yeah, <laughs> fucked okay, up yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sally, Aww. thank you. Everybody, so Anjali much. for Sally Cohn. Thank you. Um, really, I, I encourage you all to read this book. It's an important book. It's an important time to be reading a book like this. Um, and I feel like Sally is a really great person to lead us down this journey to the opposite of hate, which is a space that I think a lot of us would like to get to in these controversial times. So thank you for writing it. Thank you for your heart and humor and your bravery in doing so and putting yourself out there on a topic that a lot of us need to learn more about. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you all for being thank here. Thank you, everybody, for being here. We'll be signing and selling and over there with Strand. Thank you Thank you so much. Thank you again. Um, I had a good time. I actually sat down and and forgot I was working. So uh, <laughs> let me just say, at the beginning of a program, I didn't have this book. Check out the schedule. Hope to see you again many, many times this week. Uh, we are on until Sunday, so we have uh, many more days to go. Um, the books are right there, the Strand Bookstore. Please um, buy a book, come and have it signed by Sally, and then have a drink. The bar is open. Um, enjoy and hang out. Either or, thank you again for coming. Thank you very much.